0: This show is part of the Electric Agora network of podcasts.
1: David Labry, how are you today?
0: I'm doing very well, Kevin. Thanks for asking me to join you today.
1: Oh, sure. Well, thanks for being the, the first returning guest. Um, for those who haven't heard, I had David on uh, the show, what, a few months ago. We talked about K-12 education, and uh, today we're going to talk a little bit about higher education. But first... I got to ask you, um, you're fairly recently retired from Stanford University, where you uh, taught research for some time. So how, how's everything going? What are, you, what are you up to?
0: It's great. It's great. You're early in your career, but uh, when it gets close to retiring, don't flinch from it. It's, uh, it's a good thing. Uh, you can do the fun stuff without having to do the, the not fun stuff.
1: I know it just—it seems like all the fun stuff that I get to do is—is is swallowed up by deadlines. Yes, service work. I guess you don't have to really do a whole lot of that or any of that, really.
0: But service work is like if somebody wants you to review something, sure, if you feel like it. But you know, you're not chairing a committee, uh, you're not attending faculty meetings, um, you're not having office hours, and you're—you're you're not doing student advising and. You're not grading papers. <laughs> what a wonderful form of uh, release that is!
1: Yeah, I, so I, I, I have to be. Yeah, I have to be really honest. In uh, I, I understand why faculty governance is great in theory, but in practice, I just don't know. I, I I I like. I don't want administrators to be making all of my all of the decisions about running departments and things. But at the same time, I just feel like. Um, it's sometimes it would be better than sitting in meetings and just reviewing endless tasks that i'm not sure of am equipped to do let alone have the interest in doing i don't know
0: i know what you mean there's a sort of sense that if things are going well i'd rather have a dictator just taking care of stuff but when it encroaches on my interests and somehow or another then suddenly I'm all in favor of academic governance. And then the danger of that is as soon as you open your mouth, they say, well, we ought to set up a committee and you should be running it. We can explore this issue. And you say, oh, I made a terrible mistake here.
1: Or or not even explore the issue. You get some task like we want you to keep the minutes for the... we want you to do the. We want you to uh, do the the, the nitty gritty research on this little area in the spreadsheet. Um, but yeah, I, I think we needed be the benevolent hotspot. We need. Yeah. We needed. We need administrators who will make all the judgments that I would make. That's what we need.
0: What I was going to say is that uh, one of the things I've discovered is that I, I can still write. That was, that was nice, but I don't have to write under pressure because I'm not trying to impress anybody. And I don't have to put it in academic journals that nobody's going to read. I can try to place it someplace where there might actually be a readership. That's nice. Yeah. Uh, And I can also do kind of what my teaching is. i started a blog and I thought of the blog as my teaching outlet. It's like a place to exercise my teacher voice, uh, the kind of stuff that I would have brought up in a class, or that I would have put up on a PowerPoint, or I would have led a discussion about, I can put there, and I can actually reach a larger audience—not very big, but it's certainly more than 30 people sitting in a room. So that's been nice, and it's totally under my control. So that's very nice.
1: So, are you working on any uh, any books at the moment? Books are too much work. They're too hard. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, you've read enough separate- of my- they suck the life out of you. That last one took me like five years. And yeah. it's like, really, uh, I may do another one someday, but uh, I'm, in no rush. Yeah. I'm in no rush.
1: Well, your last yeah. book is a, is an interesting segue to what we're going to talk about today because your last book is, um, I guess, the only book you've written explicitly about higher education. It's called Correct. The Mess. And it's about why colleges and universities in the US have kind of evolved as they have and the temptation that we should really resist the temptation to try to like plan top down what these universities look like. It's just, it's, it's nice Mm -hmm. to have an evolved system, even though there's some tensions in there. Um, And we're, I really want to talk to you today about academic freedom um, and what it's, where it's been, what the origins were, but also um, what role it is playing or has, should be playing today. Um, and, you know, some of the cases that kind of testing the limits maybe of academic freedom. Um, yeah. So why don't we start with kind of the idea of academic freedom? You had mentioned before we started this discussion uh, that academic freedom has a pretty lengthy history, more than I had thought that it did, uh, much, much farther back. So why don't we start think, like with the idea of where did this idea of academic freedom come from what is it trying to do and then maybe what how did it evolve in the u.s context
0: sure good idea yeah i mean academic freedom is kind of like democracy it's a good idea but people don't actually do it very well or do it very much it's more of an ideal than a practice often um i don't think that makes it meaningless i think having norms, even if they're frequently violated, uh, has some effect on an institution, on the behavior of people in it. But it's still a, uh, uh, it's never been the golden age of free speech in higher ed. There was no such time. Um, But in some ways, I think of it as, going back to another issue that I wrote about in my book, and that is that I find it embedded in this notion that universities have traditionally had a, a surprising degree of autonomy as institutions, much more so than elementary and secondary schools ever have. Uh, they've been seen to be apart, you know? Um, I mean, you look at the sort of classic college architecture and the quad which was, you know, arranged after—modeled after, uh, modeled after the, the monastery. But it was—and like a monastery, it's got walls around it, you know? It's a—it's a safe space. It's a—it's a—it's deliberately cut off from the world, as what monastic life is like. Um, and so that origin story is actually pretty interesting. And look at the—the the way universities emerged in Europe. Um, starting, you know, in the high middle ages was, uh, it was a perfect time in some ways for creating an institution that was interstitial, uh, that was sort of in between space. Uh, I mean, the two big powers in medieval life were the church and the state. And the university was a very interesting location between the two. I mean, it uh, often the faculty tended to be clergy or monks, um, so there was a strong um, a church component to it. Um, and the church component was useful because it helped protect you from uh, the state. You could, students could shave the top of their heads so they would look like clerics And the local sheriff couldn't arrest them when they got drunk and disorderly uh, because they were, they had benefit of clergy. Uh, And so on the other hand, the uh, church itself could be intrusive and the state found these universities useful too. The local nobles, but particularly kings, relied on on universities. This university professors that would write treaties for them, serve as diplomats and, and would serve as their legal scholars. And so they were, they were kind of their intellectual uh, uh, army that they could use. And so the state had a good uh, incentive to protect them against the, uh, the church. So, and it worked at different levels too. The Pope would defend the church against the local bishop and vice versa, and the king would defend the university against the local noble who was trying to encroach on it. And it turns out that it seems for all of those constituencies, it was more useful in its quasi-independent form than it would have been as a wholly owned subsidiary of church or state. And so that was a kind of an accident of the, the medieval regime. Uh, and it started to disappear in Europe with the rise of the modern nation state. Right. Uh, and the decline of the church, the fracturing of the church. Um, and the, uh, so in the, in the European setting in particular, the university became increasingly <clears throat> under direct control of the state. One of the interesting things I found about the American case is that the origin story of American universities um, has some parallels to the medieval in that the uh, the American university started in the early 19th century at a time when the state was very weak Mm. uh, and the church was very divided. There was no national church. Uh, There was no strong state. <clears throat> and the market was a very strong actor. And so the early colleges were, we would now call them private. That is, they had a corporate charter just like any other private corporation with a local board. There was a charter issued by the state, but the state did not control that case. Right. The Dartmouth College case, and I think it was 1817, decided that just because the state of New Hampshire had chartered Dartmouth College didn't mean that they could control it. Uh, and so the, uh, you ended up having this institution that was <clears throat> um, not beholden to either church and state, though they tended to draw support from either as much as they could. They loved state money if they could get it. They loved sponsorship by a church if they could get it, because that provided revenue and credibility. Um, but they were also operating on their own as as self uh, uh, supporting enterprises, and they had to they had to attract students and bring in student dollars, and they had to attract donors, and they had to create a kind of sense of membership and ownership between the person who was going to the college and the college itself, and between the donor and the college to create this kind of identification and that's been turned out to be a very important thing for american universities in general compared to universities elsewhere um, people wear the brand and you know, american universities they're plastered with this logo they go to the football games they um and the college is not just where you go to school it's who you are it's your identity. it's the first question you ask about somebody of college age is where do you go to school Um, And it sticks with you for life. You become a loyal fan of the football team and you make donations. And so that's been a very important source of independence for the university. And so, in some ways, I think of the free speech as an emanation from that quasi-monastic setting of people that are partially cut off from the world. They're connected with the world, but they're a little outside it they're in that ivory tower they're behind the walls they're inside the quad
1: yeah it does seem it does seem um like it's a it's a it is a little bit of a different thing though to say that the institution as a a whole is free and autonomous versus the individuals in the institution are free and autonomous right so like you know uh walmart is a private company and they're autonomous to to a large degree but that of course doesn't prevent them from telling employees what they can and can't do. And universities are obviously a little different. I remember um, a former uh, department chair talking to me at some point. I was a graduate student, so I guess he felt he could be open about this. He's like, Kevin, I don't know any other career where I, as a department chair, could contact one of my um, staff, one of my faculty, and say, you need to be doing this and have that person emboldened enough to write back and tell me why they won't do it, Mm -hmm. right? There's no other industry on the planet, it seems, where that would happen, but it does happen, um, you know, probably for worse in some cases and probably for better in a lot of cases. So uh, the idea of academic freedom as an individual thing that faculty members have and not just the institution, but faculty members. Um, How did that start, especially in the American context? What, where did we start experimenting with this idea of academic freedom and tenure as a formal thing that you're granted as a faculty member
0: Good yeah it's a good idea. I would like to come back to that issue about uh, the uh, independence of the faculty from the administration because I think that is also a part of the story and it's particularly so in the American setting but I mean if you look at the uh, A case that in some ways, the classic case that kicked off the whole idea of tenure, this notion of academic tenure. You don't just have some vague right to free speech on campus but that you somehow have a right to your position um, that's independent of things that you might say and that in other jobs might get you fired. Um, That was a relatively late development and the uh, the key case i'm just looking it up today um i've spent my last few years teaching at stanford and stanford was the uh, marquee example hmm. uh, in 1900 stanford was started what 1892 i guess by leland and jane stanford leland died stanford uh, jane was the chair of the board of trustees and was the entire endowment of the university. It's hard to picture a person more powerful mm-hmm. in the university setting today as she was then. Um, <clears throat> she was the checkbook that kept the place going, and uh, there was a professor there. And it's a um, an economist named Edward Ross, uh, who uh, was he was a, a Democrat, which of course was not a good thing. He supported Brian. uh, But even worse, he was in favor of labor unions. And so she demanded that David Starr Jordan, the the president that she had basically appointed, uh, fire him. He kept saying no, and he finally gave in and fired Ross. Mm. Um, Other faculty started to quit, saying this is an outrage. This is not a real university. You know, it's a it's a corporate shop here. We all work for Jane, that's not right. Um, the, uh, that's when st- the, they first developed an academic Senate at Stanford to create some sort of a, uh, a collegial buffer against uh, administrative control. And that was also one of the cases that started the movement toward tenure and the American University of, uh, Association of University Professors. Uh, So the idea of tenure started emanating out from that case and other cases like it right at the turn of the century, which was the right time for this to happen. That's where the university was no longer just a sleepy little college, but it was turning into a big research enterprise with a high public profile and a big budget. And so these issues suddenly were salient of national issues.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's two things that really are interesting about the story to me. The first is that um, academic freedom, I mean, at least that case kind of illustrates how conservative at one point the university was. And, of course, that's com- that's contrary to the narrative that you generally hear today. Right. Is that the university skews very far left. Uh, and, I mean, you could even arguably say that academic freedom is, is taken now to be almost like a conservative buzzword. Um, whereas... Mm-hmm at that time it was taken to be a very kind of liberal um, kind of buzzword against a conservative university. So that's, that's interesting. Um, because I know that if I, if I remember right, the university was very skewed um, like during the McCarthy era toward like the, the idea was like loyalty oaths, right? It, the, the academic freedom was the mantle that battled against like loyalty oaths. And no, we right. we're not going to like not be socialists, um, just because communism is a dirty word and that was kind of the miracle yeah. of academic freedom
0: yeah and again it was uh, it was a nice ideal but if you look at the practices of individual universities they were very, they, they were not completely uncomfortable about pushing aside radical professors who right. just were sending out the wrong message. Yeah, I, uh, was just,
1: I was just reading a book um, called Appointment Denied. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with it. It's a, it's this story no. of Bertrand Russell's, um, the, the controversy of, I, I, I forget exactly what university it was in the U.S. that was going to hire him for a year. Uh, man, he had a heck of a time uh, battling there. And it just it brought home to me what, how conformist – professors have often been, right? Even when yeah. we say we value academic freedom, um, it, academia has not been immune very often to a, a sort of um, conformity uh, in terms of pressuring other professors to kind of get in line and tone it down a little bit and, and that stuff. Um,
0: no, I think you're right. And as I was nearing the end of my career and beginning to, uh, uh, burn out as a faculty member I, those were some of the kinds of issues that started to stack up on the, on the debt on the debit side of the ledger as I was thinking about leaving. Uh, I saw it in several different forms. Uh, the form that had bothered me for years was uh, one that I particularly saw at a place like Stanford and that is, uh, a, a conformism to a, uh, a vision of being a professor that had a pretty narrow craft view of itself. Mm-hmm. My job is to work on my advisor's project, mm-hmm. uh, do a research study that would turn into my dissertation that grows out of that project, Um, And then launch myself into doing a line of work that follows directly from that kind. The same kind of research methodology, the same sort of um, theoretical framing, the same sort of uh, data that I'm using with, and then basically plowing a path through the rest of your career that... It could have been done by a plow horse with blinders on, you know? Right.
1: It's like it's an algorithm. You take the next thing, you plug it into the algorithm of your methodology, you spit out the result, okay. you do the next thing, you do the same thing. It's an algorithm.
0: Yeah, you just see, it's like, I know what the next step is here. I just do the next paper in the series and I keep doing that. I get tenure, I get promoted, I get some esteem and I can retire. And so yeah. that's not academic freedom. I know it's, it's, part of it is that And this is an issue we have talked about earlier Mm -hmm. in many ways more self-censorship than than censorship when it comes to higher ed. We tend to say that's not professional. You know, um, I can't use the personal pronoun when I write because that's not professional. It's not me talking, it's my data, it's my science here that's talking. And I'm, I'm speaking in a particular role that's very carefully defined. Yeah. And I, I really can't step out of it or I'm going to look like an amateur. Uh,
1: you know, it's, it's funny. I was, uh, I'm, I'm reviewing an academic book for a publisher right now. And it's a, a collection of essays or what very clearly essays, academic essays, that are kind of molded into chapters by separate authors. And one of the things that um, I notice is that – I notice it more in this case than in other cases in journals, but I notice it there too – is that three-quarters of the articles are literature review – let me defend my methodology. Oh, then I'll give you my conceptual framework. And then I'll explain every part of that. And I'll cite other people who justify this conceptual framework. And then like the last three pages of the article are a very brief discussion of what, what the results or the conclusion is. Um, and it's so, it, I mean, I, I understand why there's that academic protocol in some sense. I, you want to be transparent about your methods. Great. Um, but man, some of these things don't make for a very good reading. And they don't they manage to say very little in twenty five pages.
0: Yeah, and the less you say, the more professional you are. That's
1: yeah, in a lot of you're building you're building on that foundation,
0: which is why like the methods section is so important and the data section is so important. The interpretation at the end, that's a little risky because I'm not just standing on top of my data anymore, and I'm not just pointing to my R squared right. and the t- I am actually have to say, does this mean anything? Does it matter? Uh, are there any implications that are interesting? Well, at that point, you know, you, you better hedge your bets because when you, when you move away from your data, you're now in amateur territory, you're yeah. no longer speaking as a professional.
1: May I also know that, so I'm a non-tenure track professor. I'm a, I'm a teaching associate professor by choice. There's several reasons why I... I think it's actually life is somewhat easier. There's a trade-off. But one of the things that I notice is that my f- friends and colleagues who are on the tenure track. One of the expectations of the tenure track at universities, I, I've talked to other people who've had the same experience, is that there's this expectation that, kind of to your point, you have a quote unquote coherent research narrative, right? And, and all of your stuff is supposed to be justifiable within this yes. one research narrative. And again, I can understand kind of the virtues of that. Uh, The more specialized you get, the more knowledgeable you are in that subject. So the easier it is for you to get even deeper into it. We don't want people changing every now and then. Now, the great benefit of what I do in terms of non-tenure track is since I don't have a research expectation, I can do a paper on this and then do a paper on this other thing and then do a paper on this thing. And nobody really asks me about, well, you know, does this line up with a research narrative? I always found that to be kind of interesting. Um, you're right, it doesn't, it doesn't conflict with academic freedom, but it is a certain sort of self-censorship that also kind of makes for, I don't want to say uninteresting research, but as everyone gets more specialized, it's harder for anyone who's not in this narrow area to read anything that, that is a, a bit farther away from their field.
0: Now, there's a lot of interesting issues there. I really like the, that case in point of that, the way you've chosen to pursue things. And your choice reminds me of what's going on with some journalists right now who are basically quitting the magazines or newspapers they work for because they could say what they wanted to say. And they're going to Substack and they're charging people $5 a month to read their stuff where they have total editorial control yeah. uh, there's something quite liberating about being outside of the traces and say you can't uh you can't tell me what to write you can't tell me if this is this is professional or unprofessional this is what i do and if i'm getting an audience uh that's fine you know
1: yeah so let me so i think the um you you written an article um uh, uh, maybe several months ago about this, these two trends that you notice in um doctoral students one is the technician that you just talked about find your area pick your lane get your methodology and just plug and play you know plug and play your way through and the other um which i think brings us more towards the area of academic freedom is uh, the justice warrior is is what you call them um, not social justice warrior because I don't think you want to put a political spin on it, but just any sort of justice warrior. And the justice yeah. warrior, if I remember, is kind of like you know the conclusion you're supposed to reach because you have an idea of the world and you have an idea of academics as an af- activist for that world. Mm-hmm. And your job is almost, it's almost the opposite of the technician. The technician starts exactly. with technology and whatever the conclusion is is whatever the conclusion is. And the activist is kind of like, well, I do, I do it backwards. I know the result. And I figure out uh, backwards steps. What is, how am I going to get to that result? And I can't get to any other result because I'm an activist for this particular. World.
0: No, it's, you're right. And it's like, it's really, I found the pairing really interesting to see. On the one hand, you have people who are focusing entirely on means and not on ends. ends are peripheral uh my core of every academic paper is the methods and the data presentation and everything else is just actually when you ask academics where they start writing a paper they usually don't start at the beginning they they write the methods section you know uh that, that you can put these chunks together and so there's a way in which that's uh the means are everything but there's this flip side, which is like the uh, there's a powerful social vision of some kind that is that has a strong moral component to it that guides my work and, uh, my job is to make the world better. My job is to uh, create and roll back injustice and racism. Uh, And my work is is shaped around that goal. And uh, so it means that for a lot of issues, uh, there is a right answer that you know in advance because it's an answer based on uh, an ideological position and a moral stance. Uh, It's not piled up with data, though you can always bring data to support the point once the point is made, but it's often after the fact. And I find that really, I found that really frustrating. I was used to dealing with the technician side where I kept trying to push people. Why does that matter? Who cares? Mm-hmm. Why do that study? Is that really, sometimes I would ask people when they got into, we're gonna write a dissertation, they would come in and they tell me, here's. Here's what I'm thinking about doing, and what I'm thinking, hearing it is that how could you possibly get up every morning and do something as boring as that? <laughs> really? I mean, how? Why would you throw your life into this?
1: And then why? And then why would someone read that? Right? Yeah. And
0: so, firstly, why would somebody read it? And often, what I find is that people would uh, if, yeah, say, "Well, where did that come from?" And after a while, you tell a backstory. And way back at the beginning, there was an interesting issue. There was an important point. There was a thing they saw, a thing they cared about, an intellectual problem they were pursuing. But when they got into graduate school, they got that professionalized out of it. And they had to sort of do the job. You have to convert this into a, uh, a performance of academic professionalism within a particular genre that's pretty narrowly defined. Yeah. And so carve off all the interesting stuff and plow ahead. So, and I was saying, I was kind of used to that side, but I was a little shocked to find, and there's something very anti-intellectual about that because you're not playing with ideas. You're following an algorithm. You're taking another step down the the, uh, the, the uh, plot that you're piling here. Uh, And there's no sense of, I'm in a university, I'm gonna look around and and find interesting stuff. But then I found this other kind of anti-intellectualism, which was more ideological. It wasn't sort of the professional uh, uh, chains that were holding you back. It was more an ideological position that uh, there's some issues you just can't explore. Uh, There's some positions you just can't take. and i particularly found that hard in a classroom setting um, particularly when you were trying to have a whole class discussion because the, the the voice with the strongest moral stance behind it and a voice that's quivering with emotion is really hard to argue against uh, it's hard because it means something to you, and I'm just playing with the idea. So maybe it seems frivolous. It also seems bad because if I argue with you, then I'm making myself a racist or a sexist. Right. Um, and so I'd find that people were, in a sense, shutting themselves down. I would have students individually telling me, since I don't know, so I just, I, it's a no win situation. Uh, yeah. Have you stopped beating your wife? You know, it's like you just can't win that argument, so you back off. But it means, like, we're talking about issues, but we're not. We're just shutting down issues. We're coming up with, here's the answer. Everybody nods. People snap their fingers to in support. And then, okay, let's move on. We got that one solved. So, yeah. to, if you don't even discuss ideas.
1: Yeah, I, I guess, to me, one of the concerns with that is always um – you know, especially in a, in a world like philosophy where, you know, argument is supposed to be the, the most important thing. Um, sometimes it means that people come out with the, the right conclusions, but, but potentially re- very bad arguments. Uh, yes. Because they're not considering maybe for fear of considering or maybe for fear of fi- having other people find out that you're considering um, these arguments against your position and taking them seriously. Yes. So even if the conclusion is correct, often it just kind of allows for um, weak arguments that to kind of go unchallenged and maybe not strengthen themselves up as, as they could.
0: Yeah, no, in other words, it's like, uh, even if you're, I would agree with you based on my own reading and my own data and my own sort of reasoning through, I really wish you wouldn't be on my side because it's, it, you're undermining me because you're an easy target. To say, look, all of those people are just blathering, um, you know, they're just talking about what they think is true. They, they can't really support it with data and arguments. So, yeah. um, please, you'd be more useful on the other side.
1: Well, why don't we take this then and think about the relation of um, this and especially probably the Justice warrior to ideas of academic freedom. So I think particularly in the current scenario of two different cases, but I think we can probably think of a lot of cases. Um, the first is uh, a, I believe, philosophy professor named Kathleen Stock. Um, she's, I don't, forget, I don't recall the university she's, she's at. She uh, works in aesthetics. And she's some work on, on feminism. She's herself a feminist, but I guess she's what people would call a gender critical feminist, which I think her, her, her general argument runs that gender identity is a very important aspect of, of a person. We should always take that seriously. But there are cases where uh, natal sex should trump gender identity. And, and one of the cases she gives is, like, if you're talking about a shatter, a, 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 I'm sorry, a shelter for battered women, um, it might not, it might be antithetical to that space to allow Uh, uh, transgender women to be in that space because even though they experience themselves as women uh, other people might not be comfortable with someone who even used to be uh, or is natally a male and for this um, she she's not lost her job she but she has endured a whole lot of criticism from a lot of people in her field she's been blacklisted from conferences she just um, was the Subject of a letter that was signed by, I think, 600 plus academics uh, condemning um, her work. I mean, by my read, uh, they're probably either misreading her work or they're probably taking her as as making a case more extreme than I think she makes. But so there's one case. Uh, Another case that I think illustrates this sort of self-censoring capacity of of academics is uh, Mark Crispin Miller who's a media studies professor at NYU. And during this COVID scenario, he's teaching a course on propaganda. And his position is that propaganda is not just the stuff we don't like. It's all sorts of messages that are designed to influence what we do and think that come through media. And he was talking with the students about COVID and how COVID is being covered. They were exploring in group projects how COVID was being covered. And one of the things that came up in class he mentioned was there seem to be several studies that suggest that masks may not be uh, as effective as as some other studies and scientists represent at stopping COVID. And he just mentioned to his students, you might want to look at these studies because they seem to be pretty well-done studies. But what's interesting is that people aren't really reporting them, um, that major outlets aren't reporting them. So for this, my understanding is that Uh, A student, or at least allegedly a student, contacted the dean or the department chair, who contacted him. Uh, He was, I guess, taken out of that course. Um, They, I guess, issued a letter of condemnation. uh, The department of we don't support people, you know, infusing these sorts of, you know, pseudoscience uh, things. Again, kind of like the Kathleen Stock issue. My read is he didn't say anything that was as controversial as they made it out. But so these are just two examples of of many that, that have a lot of people concerned. I think because what we're seeing here doesn't seem like, in terms of academic freedom, as a job a guarantee of a job, regardless of what you say, they haven't lost their jobs. But the way I like to think of it is, you can lose your job without losing your job, right? So imagine you know someone like Kathleen Stock doesn't yet have tenure, and she's blacklisted from conferences. Well, you yeah. need to present at conferences so that your CV yeah. <laughs> will grow. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, you know, you need to be able to publish in these places, and even if they don't, even if it's a, even if it's a blind review and they don't know it's your paper, if there are certain things that you think you can't say that in, when you mm-hmm. try to get published, um, yeah, that's going to have a really interesting effect. So, I'm starting to wonder, in some sense, in in the 21st century, um, the idea of academic freedom seems in some sense kind of futile. Or this idea is, is really, I guess, conflicting with other ideas that like, we have political views. We express them through Twitter and all these other places. Can we get in trouble for those things at yeah. universities? It seems like we can. Um, so I don't know. I, I, I don't know. I, I don't know if you know at all about those two cases, but it might be interesting to kind of talk about where is the line, um, you know, uh, should academic freedom protect you not only formally to keep your job, should it protect you in other ways? Should it protect you from being blacklisted at mm-hmm. conferences? Um, should it protect you in the event that your department or, or university or college writes a letter condemning something you've written? Uh, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that.
0: Yeah, those cases I find really disturbing and they're just there every day popping up uh, and what's one of the things in light of this idea about academic freedom one of the things that's interesting about them is that administrators are often involved but they often are not they're responding they're not generating the problem uh, mm-hmm. That say it, academic freedom used to mean Jane Stanford can't fire you just because you have uh, political opinions she doesn't like, you know? If you're doing your job, if you're playing the professional role correctly, you should have tenure in your position and not be threatened by that kind of control. That was a freedom from the people above you uh, from just exercising your role as employer to just treat you as an employee at will. And to say, no, there has to be really serious cause here. Uh, There has to be a pretty major barrier that you would have to get past. Here, we're finding it that peers are doing it. Uh, It's a a peer, a a kind of ganging up on a peer, and then the peers send their, and they bring their students with them, send that message up, and the administrators say, now what do I do? I got a mess. Uh, And administrators don't like messes. Uh, And something we had talked about earlier before we were uh, recording the, uh, one of the things about universities is that they are, they their highest, the thing they are most focused on protecting and defending is their brand. It's who we are. And so we need to be credible. We need to have a brand that's strong and positive. And uh, controversy uh, just, dissension and potentially um, unpopular views that stir up a hornet's nest, of particularly now with social media of opposition that makes us look bad. It's hard to be an administrator in that situation and not say, yeah, it, the best way to do this is just get get her out of that, you know, get him out of teaching that class, you know, it's just like this, mm-hmm. this out of there maybe it's this will go away uh, and it's it's less the james Stanford model than it is I'm just trying to uh, preserve the brand and tamp down bad news and get us back to some sort of equilibrium again and that's unhealthy to be not you know to be caving into that kind of pressure as an administrator and I think it's bad when they do so, and some of them are more eager to cave in than others. Some of them embrace that kind of role, and others are much more reluctant. You know, the University of Chicago model tends to be on the much more reluctant role. We defend your right to say things that I think are stupid and uh, reprehensible, but that's okay because we're a university. But that's not very common now, and it's... um, it's for universities trying to preserve and extend their reputations. Social media controversy, this is not a good thing. Uh, this, is not, this is not who we are. And somebody who's always in the middle of one of those things, you're, you're a problem now. We gotta do something about you as a problem. And that's a shame and I think, you need to have a certain tolerance for jerks and problems in the university. People that always say things out of line and that don't seem to be following the norm, that's healthy. But I understand as an administrator, that's not an easy thing to say, well, I welcome that because I don't welcome that. I would much rather it just went away. Um, And the easiest way is to make you go away.
1: Yeah, I mean, administrators are getting it from two different sides. I I wonder if there's like the, if it's just that there's a this conflict between the idea of the university as a place that protects research and the university as a place that has to get money from student tuition and like you said has a brand and you protect that brand. What if there's just yeah. this this tension between those two? That um, I I don't I don't remember where it was. I didn't even uh, I I read that there's a journalist I really like named Megan Mcardle. I think she had tweeted out at some point that um, she was talking about people in the newspapers. I think there was like the New York Times has been having some problems with people oh, yes. leaving and like, like yes. people getting yes. and stuff yes. and saying the wrong things. And and she said, uh, in all seriousness, she said, if I were a newspaper, I would, uh, I would disallow my writers from tweeting. Like period. Like you are not on Twitter as a condition for this job. You are not on Twitter. And I wonder if, if um, only half jokingly, if the same thing should be <laughs> true of professors. Um, like maybe we shouldn't we shouldn't be tweeting so much.
0: <laughs> I know, it's it's interesting. I started tweeting when I started blogging, and I realized that it's a really fraught arena to be in. Yeah, and I really need to keep thinking what is my voice here, uh, and to to figure when do I not click the retweet button? And when do I decide I'm going to keep out of that issue? You know, I've got views about it, but not necessarily that I'm afraid of expressing them. But if I do, it's going to deflect attention from the things I want to be people listening to me about. And so maybe I just treat that as noise that I'd rather not create.
1: It's an interesting I, psychological yeah. experiment. Um, you know, yeah. When you introspect when you're doing that, you realize, oh, my gosh, I'm thinking about not retweeting this because of what other people will think of me. Exactly. It's like guilt by association or, oh, will you yeah. endorse this position or uh, something like that. I mean that's that's another area that's really troubling for academic freedom is um, what happens when an academic acts in some ways as either an academic or the smart guy on Twitter and tweet something out or retweet something. So, in one sense, you can say, "Well, they're not acting in their role as a researcher." Right. So, so this isn't academic freedom per se. Um, but on the other hand, they are representing the university in some way. Like usually, when academics tweet, it's they want you to know that they're an academic and they're the smart person. And here's why I'm retweeting this because, you know, I'm the smart person.
0: Yeah, Yeah, and your letterhead is part of your brand, you know, it's like, this is why academics are so eager to be, you know, climbing the status ladder of universities, because some letterheads are worth more than others. And I get a bigger megaphone, if I have this letterhead rather than that. So they're certainly not shy about letting you know where they're coming from, you know.
1: They're usually tweeting in an area that, uh, if not directly related to their research, is usually in their field, right? So like, if you're... right. Uh, a professor of feminist philosophy or you're a professor of, you know, moral philosophy You're probably tweeting stuff that's more or less in your area. Um, I don't know. I, I, I take, I'm quite taken by Stanley Fish's kind of narrow view of academic freedom in this matter. I, I don't know if you've had, yeah. if you've read his work yeah. versions of academic freedom, but, uh, he, he I have. Jo- yeah, he jokingly says that he's probably the only person who subscribes to his position. And I, I think I'm a <laughs> second one. I, I think I do. And his view is very narrow. It's like, if it's not directly related to your research, um, this should not be considered an academic freedom issue. So if a professor is trying, like she was, he was responding in his book to professors who do believe that if they get fired, let's say for social media posts, um, they can proclaim academic freedom. And his point is, no, you, that, that's not, that's not the kind of thing academic freedom protects. It's your research. Um, as much as I don't want to see people get fired for tweets, um, I think it's a stretch to call that academic freedom. Uh, I don't know uh, what your thoughts is on that. But...
0: I don't know. It's a slippery slope there. I mean, you know, Edward Ross was an economist, so he was talking about economics issues. The guy who got fired by Jane No,
1: did, uh, he, did he write yeah. publications or did he just?
0: Yeah, and it was speeches and stuff. And so. So part of it was you know writing things that were pro-labor, but part of it was also being a political actor, right and you know uh, supporting this candidate over that candidate.. Right. And it's hard to say people shouldn't be allowed to be political actors just because they're professors and that they certainly shouldn't be fired because the party they belong to or because how they voted or even how they express their views, and that not necessarily have anything to do with their work. So, I'm a little concerned about that. On the other hand, I really think professors need to be thinking very carefully about what they do on social media, because um, you also are a brand. (laughs) You know, this is, in part, it's like, and you're you've got a kind of persona that you're developing that's a professional persona and it's based on credibility, it's based on being knowledgeable, it's based on um, uh, knowing what you're talking about and having the evidence to support what you're saying and, and speaking within your expertise and not blathering too much about things that you're not expert on. And I think it's good for people not to be Shooting their mouth off of about every subject, especially if it looks like they're somehow standing on their professorial position and doing so. Right. Now, kind of like the, uh, Max Weber's take on that, you know, science as a, as a vocation, uh, that, you know, you can, you don't, don't stand on your science and say, here's what we should do. I mean, science never tells you what you should do. It can tell you what things are more, what things work better than others. They can tell you how things work, but they actually, they can't tell you what should public policy be. That's, That's either a different situation. And once you become a policy actor, that's okay. But you want to be cautious about saying my credibility as a scientist means that my view on this policy question is Trump's yours.
1: Right. So so, so the word be, Trump. So don't be Richard Dawkins or Lawrence Krauss.
0: Or, yeah, I'm a little Trump. nervous about, you know, like you're going to, yeah, I'm the expert on everything here because I have a PhD. And it's like, no, no, it's like uh, stick to you know, better to stick to things, you know, and, uh, but also don't, it's kind of sensible. Don't create unnecessary um, uh dispute and controversy unless it's around something that really matters and it's worth investing in and it's part of your of your professional role. Yeah. Otherwise, it's a distraction that's going to make you less effective and it's certainly not going to help you. I mean, there are,
1: some, there are some disciplines and there are some scholars, though, who've gained a lot of traction precisely by becoming kind of the activist oh, yeah. on Twitter. So it's almost like the reverse incentive, which is like, I could imagine some areas of thought where you're questioned if you are, uh, if you're not active on Twitter, if you're yeah. not kind of playing the um, kind of the, 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 the warrior on Twitter yeah. question for that. Yeah.
0: I mean, if you're comfortable preaching to the choir, then the choir is going to be encouraging you to keep going the way you're going. And yeah. that could be, you can have a very successful career that way, as long as you, Sort of stay within your bubble, and you attract students who like that. You get published in journals that like that kind of work. Uh, you get invited to give talks to people who want to hear that kind of story. That can work for you. I don't consider it a particularly good use of your academic life to be yeah. doing that. And it's I, I don't find it credible. Or, uh, but it's certainly you can make a living that way. Yeah.
1: I wonder, um, first of all, do we need a, a new sort of academic freedom? I mean, now that we're talking, we're talking about academic freedom in the age of social media and how blurry that line can get between your activism or whatever on Twitter, or your presence on Twitter and your research. And we're talking about it's, it's different now because it's not really supervisors that are necessarily doing it. It's more cross peer. It's more of an egalitarian kind of right. self-censorship. Um, I wonder, is, is do we need to design some sort of academic freedom or should we design some sort of academic freedom that takes those things into account and draws some clear lines and says, these are, these are the things that we will protect you from, also from peer pressure or, mm-hmm. you know, uh, we will or will not consider tweets academic freedom, but we're going to take a stand on that and we're going to hold to it.
0: I don't know. I have trouble seeing how rules and regulations can have much impact here. It's uh, how tenure itself is so vague. It's not written in any kind of black letter law fashion, even within, you know, the academic handbooks of various universities. It's always a vague and kind of negotiable term. I'm not sure how you get away with that, yeah. um, how you get away from
1: I mean, if a department wants to make your life uncomfortable, they don't have to fire you, right? They can put you in the corner office. They can give you all the classes you don't want to teach. They can overburden you with service work. They can do a whole bunch of stuff. It is murky.
0: Ben, I I mean, there's a kind of pure culture that's very strong in academic life. And a lot of our rewards as academics come from our reputation Particularly, our peer reputation. I mean, you think of that—you can't get published without peer review. Uh, you're being reviewed all the time on everything by people in your field, mm-hmm. and so that's that's an essential part of the role. Um, and so it's it's been around a long time that peer thing, but it gets narrow when it gets more ideological, sort of peer pressure, rather than are you being a good. Economics professor in this role that you're playing. Uh, that's, that's a little harder to understand. But we also notice, though, know, you've been on faculty, you know that there are, every department has a few pariahs off at of the corner, the, of the edge. Uh, you know, it's maybe the one that stopped publishing years ago, or the one that has a reputation as being just a terrible teacher, and you try to keep. That person away from important classes to teach, um, or it was a, it, those sorts of things—they're meaningful. It's—it's it's not pretty to be in a pariah position. Uh, It's—you you, kind of know when people are talking about you in the hall, mm-hmm. uh, and you really don't want that. This is—that's a—that's a pretty powerful motivating uh, force. We don't get. I mean, you think about how academics get rewarded. We get paid better than we probably should be for a lot of the time, but pay is not the main form of support. It's it's prestige. It's it's reputation. It's chaotic goods. It's awards. It's titles. It's endowed chairs. It's chairing committees. It's being an editor of this and a vice president of that. You know, that's like, that's what you stack up your, your curriculum. Detail. It's just a a big stack of merit badges that you've accumulated over the years. And so that means you're really sensitive of demerit badges. You really don't want to accumulate those. And the danger in this current context is that it's becoming increasingly easy to get. You do one tweet and suddenly you've got a big demerit badge right in the middle of your forehead that wipes out everything else you've just you've ever done.
1: Right. And even if it's not Formal. I mean you just you just tweeted three minutes, it wasn't a formal thing. It was just um and yeah, it's I mean I, I also know that one of the criticisms of tenure has long been that the tenure process is supposed to be obviously about academic freedom, which is supposed to be about the freedom to kind of publish potentially radical against the grain stuff. But the whole tenure process seems almost designed to select out the people who would benefit from that sort of thing, right? Like to get tenure, you really have to show for what six years, really usually, uh, the, how good of a team player you are, and how you will never say anything that. Um, it's not like put it this way: if, if an academic who really would benefit from tenure gets tenure, that means they've been lying for six years. <laughs> right. No, it's a good and point. If they Yeah. Say what they yeah. Really think in those six years, then they're not going to get tenure because they're going to be weeded out. So it almost seems like a, a counterproductive process, whether that's by design or just by effect.
0: No, I think you're right. It often means that the things you did to get you tenure and to move you on toward your next promotion, which you also don't want to be in that position of being the lifelong associate professor who never made it to the next stage. That's another form of uh, pariahship. Yeah. But you know, you you don't. Yeah, the the, the things that got you there. Uh, you build a momentum that you're, the likely thing is you're going to keep doing what you were doing before because uh, it, it worked, it got you there. And it's now you. It's what you know how to do. It's also easier because you just you don't have to break a sweat thinking about what to do next. It's right in front of you. You know, you just do the next paper in that chain. Um, the it's it's sad, but I think that's often the case. On the other hand, it can have a different. A case I, I remember distinctly. Um, the summer I got tenure, uh, my mouth opened up in faculty meetings. It really yeah. uh, I could feel the difference. It's like uh, we were. It was at Michigan State. We were having a fight with the dean, and you know you don't mess with the dean when you're getting tenure. Uh, but like it just stein saying wait a minute this is i don't I disagree this is that we shouldn't be doing this yeah. uh, and uh, it can work and it's that's it's important that people feel that capability of saying, no, we shouldn't be doing that, and no, I'm not going to just be nodding and going along with whatever the the uh, consensus seems to be here. Uh, it still can play that role but it's probably unlikely to for most people because it, for most pe- mostly it's the, your careerism and self-interest says just keep going. It's working for you. Right. Keep going.
1: Yeah, I did, and, the, I did the most informal of possible studies. It wasn't even I didn't write anything on it. It was just when I was a doctoral student into when I was a, a first and second year professor, whenever someone would mention um, the, te- the benefits of the tenure track, um, I would just take note of what they, what they found valuable about tenure. And nobody that I recall said academic freedom. It was always job security. It was job security. Now, yeah. they, they meant yeah. academic freedom, like job security by way of academic freedom. But no one said, I really want to get tenure because then I can write what I really think. No one said that. They said, I want to get tenure yeah. so that I have job security. Um, that was interesting that's interesting yeah i
0: think you're right i think that's it's hard but i found again in my own case i found it one of the liberating things was that i i felt i could branch out i mean like the book that got me tenure was a very empirical book it even had you know regression analyses in it you know it's like it, it had tables it was like uh, it had lots of uh, documents behind it. It was like a it was a, a pile of, of data, uh, and but I stopped doing that kind of work afterwards. My work got much less empiricist and more a matter of synthesis and essay writing, which is not how you get tenure. Um, and I also felt much more comfortable about branching out. and started doing stuff that was a mile wide and an inch deep, uh, which is also not how you get tenure. tenure. Very deep and very narrow, that's how you proceed. So it can serve that role, but it's tricky because as you're saying, the things you need to do to get to that point of freedom are things that are likely to trap you in the traces forever afterwards.
1: I wonder, um, kind of as a probably last question, you mentioned Substack earlier as kind of a trend in journalism where people are kind of uh, being fired from or leaving magazine writing because they're they're unsatisfied with the constraints or they're getting fired because they're not meeting the constraints. So then they go to Substack and Patreon and stuff and, and they can just ca- kind of uh, write directly. I wonder um, whether you think that academia will start to go in a similar direction um i personally think that especially the humanities are going to be a tough sell at the university from here on because if you think about why you go into the humanities um i mean unless you just really love the subject and you want to spend years getting a degree that probably won't serve you very well professionally um you get it for the the degree or you get it because that's where all the resources are that's where the people are that's where the libraries are Mm -hmm. Well, the latter is being taken care of by the internet. It's not necessarily where all the smart people, all the resources are. Like if I want to study philosophy, there's no particular reason why I have to do it at a university. I can find tutors, I can find all the books. And then the former, I mean, I think we all, I think it's been shown pretty well that while a degree in philosophy will get you a job, it won't get you any sort of job that's different from a degree in, in other fields. So, I'm kind of pessimistic about, or optimistic, depending on where you're viewing it from, um, the idea that the university is going to stay as this cohesive place that's like the full service, get your education here, folks. Uh, this is the only place to go. I'm wondering how many academics are gonna if they are gonna start to go that private route. Um, Like, I'm going to offer my services online. I I already know of a few quote-unquote universities that are really, like, lecture, you know, like, clubs. You pay and you get access to all these lectures and you just have discussion groups and all that stuff. There's no degrees. But you can learn stuff there. Uh, I don't know if you've seen any of that or if you have any thoughts on, is the university going to be this catch-all service? in the future.
0: Yeah, boy, I sure hope that doesn't happen. I mean, I'm, I've, I've been following that Substack phenomenon and I understand why people are doing it. I can understand how liberated they feel when they get in that position. And uh, I followed some of those people because some of my favorite writers are now doing that.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, yeah one is even publishing his book through Substack, basically. Uh,
1: John McWhorter, is that?
0: Yeah, yeah, it's like, it's, very, it's like wow, I mean, that's like a whole different world. But it, it's, it makes me nervous. I mean, on the journalism side, it really makes me nervous that, you know, the idea of having a paper record is, is just so yesterday, you know, that you having a, a national news show that everybody watches is not happening anymore. Um, and, you know, the one magazine people read and, and the, those – there's something important about having an institutional setting with a whole variety of voices, but under some degree of professional regime that keeps them reasonably honest and, um, and sets some standards, and where you can get multiple voices. And, you know, I like... Reading these people on Substack, but they're preaching to the people who are willing to pay them $5 a month. Yeah, that's right. And so you have to, so somehow I have to construct my own magazine by following 20 people on Substack. I used to-
1: More than you would for a magazine. By the end. Yeah. And
0: it's a, it's, yeah, it's a terrible bargain economically. <laughs> yeah. And so the, the, but it's also, it seems, in terms of social cohesion and ability to deliberate a democracy, it's really hard if everybody's just following Fox Channel or MSNBC or their favorite substack person or their favorite, favorite person on Twitter, and that that's the source of my knowledge now. And uh, the, the sense of common ground just disappears. And universities, Need to hold on to being some kind of a common ground where hmm. that that are more than just uh, you know opinion machines, but institutions that can serve a wide range of functions and are worth preserving because of that, even though we don't agree with what they a lot of what they do.
1: Yeah. Well, I think that's a good place to uh, to end it. Um, I think we've been going we've been uh, for a little over an hour, so that's probably where we. Good. Go, but it, uh, Sounds good to me. Fascinating to, to talk to you again. Uh, first time on K-12, this time on higher ed. What are we going to talk yeah. about next time?
0: I don't know. This is fun. I really, uh, I want to talk to you more about that choice you made about not doing the tenure check because that's, that's a brave step that many people have taken, but yeah. it can be enormously liberating. It's yeah. just sort of. You, you 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 have no control over me on that well my, my podcast is my podcast and <laughs>
1: <laughs> for sure cool well uh, thank you for for hanging out this is great I appreciate it yeah.
0: just in some time